Arsenal for Democracy is freely available weekly at arsenalfordemocracy.com or Apple and Stitcher. And we're supported by some listeners at patreon.com slash arsenalfordemocracy for $3 a month. The show is recorded and produced by me, Bill Humphrey, in Newton, Massachusetts. Our theme music is produced by Stuntbird. Follow us on Facebook or at AFD Radio on Twitter. The show is not affiliated with any campaign committee, and each participant's opinions are their own. This man is your man. This man is my land. California. The New York Island. The Redwood Forest. The Gulf Stream Waters. This man was made you and me. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy, episode 459, recorded on Sunday, February 12th, 2023. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Joining me on the line from Idaho, as always, is Rachel. Hello, Rachel. Hi, Bill. This week, we continue to delve into the economic, social, and cultural transition of the pre-Civil War northern United States with the arrival of industrial capitalism. And more specifically, we're returning to the subject of the Panic of 1837. One of the early warning signs of an impending financial collapse and economic depression came in mid-February 1837, when about a thousand New York City residents, attending a larger rally for the radical Locofoco wing of the Democratic Party, rioted over the rapidly rising price of flour. Most of our first Industrial Revolution episodes so far have focused on Massachusetts, but it is important to note for contrasting context in today's episode that New England, and specifically Massachusetts, were mostly immune from the Panic of 1837 and the ensuing years of doldrums, with the railroads, some though not all textile mills, and certain well-connected banks continuing to hum along profitably there. And that's according to an article, American Romanticism and the Depression of 1837 by William Charvat in Science and Society, Volume 2, Number 1 from the winter of 1937. Our recent three episodes on the Boston Associates cover some of the reasons for that local stability and isolation from the rest of the country's systemic panic and hard currency shortages. But elsewhere in the United States, and particularly in New York City, life became very hard from 1837 to at least 1843 for a lot of people. The February 1837 flower riot, which, while short-lived and rapidly suppressed, was the first big manifestation of that period, which saw hardships for both the emerging urban wage-laboring classes and the cash-poor independent rural farmers out in the hinterlands. Now, the flower riot itself was pretty brief, so we're going to talk a little bit about it, but mostly we're going to be talking about sort of the surrounding context uh, for that those events. Um, but one thing that we found that was a little bit tricky about this particular topic is it's unclear what the exact date was that this happened. We know it was in February of 1837, um, but some sources said it was the 10th, some sources said it was the 12th or the 13th, uh, but it was only one day long. Um, obviously, there was sort of a rising action of people getting more and more agitated about it before they actually rioted, uh, but the, the events themselves were fairly short-lived. Um, quoting now a quick summary from NewYorkHistory.org, In 1836 to 1837, flour prices escalated from $7 to $12 per barrel, creating fear that this necessary commodity would become unaffordable. In February 1837, a mass meeting was called in protest. A mob attacked Hart & Co., an establishment accused of hoarding flour. More than 400 barrels of flour and thousands of sacks of wheat were thrown out the windows. The military was called in to quell the rioting. Now, 
Uh, before we go to Rachel for some additional details here and caveats on this account, because it's a little bit confusing as to what happened, some of it, as we said, um, I'm not entirely sure why they decided that uh, the way to deal with a uh, rising cost of flour and potential fears of shortages uh, was to destroy a lot of it. Uh, but that seems to be what they did. Maybe that was just the impulse in the moment. Um, but uh, Rachel, was the fear of hoarding sort of a major concern here in addition to the rising prices? Yeah. Uh, one thing to note coming from the, Wiki part, the Wikipedia article on the flower right of 1837, in addition to the Locofoco faction, the local penny papers were also reporting on companies hoarding of flour in order to increase scarcity and drive up flour prices. So they too were partially responsible for inciting the ire of the people towards the flour merchants. They were, they caught a rumor of this happening. And so they published it, they spread the rumor and really kind of sparked the flame that led to the flour riot. Okay. So before we get into the broader economic situation, we have to break down a few things that you've just talked about here. First of all, we need to talk about who the Loco Focos were and what their relationship was to this uh, event that unfolded. Uh, and we need to talk about what exactly happened uh, and why the people reacted the way that they did in this situation. And then we need to talk about the economics, as I said. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about uh, the local focus, at least in New York City, and we'll talk about their uh, non-urban contingent as well later. Yeah, so our explanation on the Locofoco faction, the Locofoco movement, uh, comes from uh, advocating the man uh, conclusion, the Locofoco party. So this is the final section of a monograph on masculinity and the self-identity of New York working class men in the early to mid 19th century. But it does happen to include a description of the riot as an offshoot of the Locofoco rally. And just a note on the source, uh, this comes from Gutenberg E, which is a program of the American Historical Association and Columbia University Press. Uh, these award-winning monographs, coordinated with the American Ho Historical Association, afford emerging scholars new possibilities for online publications, weaving traditional narrative with digitized primary sources, including maps, photographs, and oral histories. That's just a little explainer of the website. Um, it is not associated with the Gutenberg Project, so we wanted to be really clear on where our source came from. So, quoting from this monograph, The story of how the Locofoco party began is worth mentioning briefly. At the Democratic Party meeting on October 29, 1835, candidates for the upcoming election were to be chosen, but members were divided over whether to support pro-bank, pro-monopoly candidates, or anti-bank, anti-monopoly candidates. When the latter group attempted to grab the floor, the bank supporters turned off the gas, darkening the room. Tipped that the lights might go out, anti-monopoly supporters pulled out a new variety of self-striking, quote-unquote, Locofoco brand matches, which they brought to the meeting and continued to nominate their own splinter candidates. The new group styled itself as the Equal Rights Party, but was given the name Locofoco Party from the hostile Whig press. Um, see Fitzwilliam Birdsall, The History of the Locofoco or Equal Rights Party, its movements, conventions, and proceedings with short characteristic sketches of its prominent men, um, and that was published in 1842. On February 13th, again, the date is somewhat ambiguous with different sources citing different dates. Um, on February 13th, 1837, 
Members of the Equal Rights Party held a meeting in City Hall Park to protest the high cost of family necessities and household maintenance, spurred to attend by handbills that demanded, quote, bread, meat, rent, and fuel, their prices must come down, end quote. Thousands arrived in the cold weather. The crowd bristled and grew restless over the subject of the cost of foodstuffs, having seen flour prices rise from $7 per barrel in September to $12 per barrel by early February. Trouble began following speeches by mayoral candidate Moses Jacks and Alexander Ming Jr., who, noticing the potential danger, exhorted the audience to, quote, do no act which might bring into disrepute the fair fame of a New Yorker or the character of man, end quote. Moments after the meeting adjourned, a group of nearly 1,000 protesters broke away from the rally and marched down to the flower warehouses at 173 and 175 Washington Street, owned by Eli Hart and Company. After demonstrators stole and destroyed 500 barrels of flour and 1,000 bushels of wheat and repelled Mayor Lawrence and a small contingent of officers, the throng moved along to other targets, including Herrick and Company's flower store. The riot ended within a few hours, and police held 53 individuals in jail, yet they arrested no loco focos. This fact did not prevent the partisan press from excoriating the party for inciting the melee and encouraging street violence. Loco foco leaders rebuffed the attacks and continued their campaign against monopolies and other economic institutions that threatened their domestic stability. Subsequent park meetings throughout the spring drew as many as 40,000 protesters. Leading Tammany Hall officials noticed the growing public support and in the midst of the financial panic, conceded to a number of loco foco demands and reunited the Democratic Party by the fall of 1837. And there are a bunch of uh, lists of sources um, at the end of this uh, uh, monograph. So if you want to get some further reading sources, um, they, they will be included in the show notes. And they all date from no earlier than February 14th, 1837, but a lot of them are contemporary articles that are cited there. So that does suggest that it probably was February 13th, or at least if it wasn't then, then it would have been a few days earlier, um, but not much more than that. Um, but the... Uh, as as just alluded to there, the concerns and agitation did not end with the flower riots. That obviously didn't solve their problem. The economic depression continued to unfold and worsen. Um, at the time, they probably didn't even realize that was what was happening. And then it ended up lasting for you know almost five years. So uh, we also took a look at the social history of an American depression, 1837 to 1843, published in the American Historical Review, Volume 40, Number 4, from July 1935. Interestingly, when we were researching this episode, we found that a bunch of uh, articles and papers written about the 1837 panic were published during the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, just about 100 years later. Um, but Rachel, could you talk a, a little bit about some of the other things that happened during this uh, period of economic turmoil in the United States uh, after the flower riots in New York sort of kicked things off? Yeah, so uh, conditions did not really improve after the suppression of the riot. It was obviously part of a bigger downturn. Um, so it was estimated in April 1837 that there were 50,000 unemployed workers in New York City and 200,000 underemployed in terms of earning enough to meet their needs. Perhaps a quarter of quote-unquote mercantile and manufacturing businesses in the city had closed, and perhaps 90% of factories in the eastern United States shuttered production, at least temporarily. Um, eventually, this began to lead toward tenant movements in New York City against paying residential rents, 
presumably because the workers simply lack the ability to pay. And this uh, infuriated the landowning rich class, and they were very upset about this. Um, so one key political belief of the Locofoco radicals was that the state should not play a legal role in the enforcement of credit arrangements. Lenders should lend money at their own risk and on their own judgment, and creditors should repay debts as a matter of honor, and the market could sort it out without need for the government to enforce debt repayments or arrest debtors. And there was a relatively successful movement to reform state laws on debtors in various states to protect families from losing everything they owned if they were foreclosed upon and to protect against imprisonment for all debts that were not the result of outright fraud. So getting rid of debtors' prisons um, happened around this time. There was a big movement to change those laws. And a short-lived federal law on personal bankruptcy in the early 1840s allowed 28,000 Americans to clear almost half a billion dollars in unrepayable debts before it was repealed. And I can't help but see an echo of that today um, in, in the midst of student debt uh, cancellation and discussions of actually talking about other debt jubilees, getting rid of other debts on the books. Yeah, so as Rachel earlier said, one of the big sort of dividing lines at this point in American politics uh, and it is one of the things that actually leads to the crisis, uh, I think most people would argue from today's perspective, is this issue of, of banking and specifically uh, whether there should be a lot of little banks or one big central bank. Uh, and the collapse is sort of precipitated by the rollback of the having the one big bank and having lots of little banks all of which were kind of doing their own thing, completely unregulated, unsecured, uninsured, et cetera. And they all kind of collapse, go into a tailspin and bring everything down with them, right? That's something we've talked about on previous episodes, like we talked about um, in our series on uh, American money and currency issues and things like that. But sort of underlying a lot of this was this sort of not fully articulated sense that, that these you know, monopoly interests representing the wealthy, like one big bank or something like that, or even just a few very powerful banks in each state, uh, that they were coming to control the government, right? Um, and you might say, sure, of course they were, that's intuitive. But remember, this is a period when uh, industrial capitalism and finance capitalism is just starting to arrive in the United States and really take root, right? We talked about this in the context of the uh, Lowell, the Waltham Lowell uh, textile mills in Massachusetts and the Boston Associates and so forth. But they, of course, had their own version of how they were doing things, too. As we talked about earlier in this episode, that Massachusetts was kind of on its own trajectory during the uh, Depression that began in 1837. So it's not necessarily a great example. So what we're talking about today is sort of the bigger picture in other areas of the country, like New York City or upstate New York and places uh, like that. Uh, that we will talk about more in just a moment. So keep this in the back of your head, right? That there's this kind of um, not fully understood, not fully articulated sense of antagonism and anger and disenchantment. People that were maybe advocating economic policies that weren't even going to benefit themselves, they might actually hurt them, uh, as clearly the decentralization of banking ended up hurting a lot of people. Um, but it was because of this sense of like, a few people and a few companies should not be able to completely control the government and get their way on everything. Uh, and 
there's also the issue of like how do you pay for things because the the system is starting to transition. It hasn't fully, and some areas are further ahead than other areas of the country, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, but things are starting to be required to be paid in uh, in money rather than in goods uh, or on credit or whatever. You have to actually pay up, uh, and you have to... Uh, should, should that be paid in paper money? Uh, how much should the paper money be valued at? How Should it be taken at face value? Should it be discounted, et cetera? Uh, or, does it, or do you have to pay in hard coins, right? So all of these things are kind of coming together in this very confusing sort of morass as the economy is beginning to transition. And again, we've done a lot of episodes about the second industrial revolution where these processes are much more further developed and advanced. This is really uh, still fundamentally an agrarian country. It's producing agricultural goods of various kinds. Uh, and there's just starting to be these uh, these other projects like, you know, obviously there had been the railroad and canal boom starting a few years before this uh, crash happens. That speculation helps lead to this crash. But also you, you have these uh, factory ventures and mills opening up in various places. Again, not to the same extent that we see several decades later. This is very early in the process still, but but certainly a significant uh, force emerging. And so the, the economy is beginning to change, society is beginning to change, and people are really grappling with what that means, what their relationship is to it, what that relationship is to the government, what their relationship is to each other within their communities, and so forth. And in many cases, again, not a fully uh, clearly articulated uh, position or one that necessarily makes coherent sense, um, but you can kind of see some of the themes here of people uh, getting particularly upset. So we've talked about the flower riot in New York City itself and that people were upset about the potential uh, hoarding of resources. They were upset about the rising price of flour, were they gonna be able to eat enough, uh, the, the prices of wheat and so forth. Now we need to go outside of the city and look at those areas where that food is being imported from, uh, or at least the ingredients for the food is being imported from. What is the situation out there? What is their take on these same political issues and on this uh, loco foco splintering within the Democratic Party that's happening uh, in this period of the mid to late 1830s? So as another strange aside, in 1837 and 1838, some Americans in the Great Lakes region began taking up arms in noteworthy, if disputable, numbers as part of a patriot movement in the U.S. and Canada that aimed to overthrow British rule in Canada and institute republicanism there by force. Ohio and New York often provided safe havens to Canadian frontier rebels. The U.S. government made its largest deployment of federal troops since the Whiskey Rebellion to shut down these American paramilitary activities on the U.S. side of the border and to stop them from repeatedly trying to invade Canada. Unemployment appears to have been a factor in Americans in the Great Lakes region joining the cause, and many of the American wage laborers and farmhands in the border area already routinely crisscrossed the border with Canada for work on a regular basis before the economic collapse. Uh, and this is coming from a 2003 article in the publication Labor or Le Travail, which is a Canadian publication, I believe, uh, by Andrew Bontheus, uh, titled The Patriot War of 1837 to 1838, Locofocoism with a Gun. The author describes the ideological position of the radical Locofoco movement inside the 1830s Democratic Party as essentially common people hostile to the emerging industrial finance capital's control of the political system. 
Locofoco Politics united both wage laborers and smallhold farmers whose lives in the new market economy revolved more and more around cash. Credit and lending were dangerous to them because, unlike the rich people, they needed to settle their debts and pay their bills in hard coin, not unreliable and discounted paper notes from banks. Paper notes they received for their labor or agricultural produce or cottage industry goods, especially in small denominations under $5, could not be redeemed for coins at the same value. Credit to them also meant exorbitant interest and unwise financial speculation, compared to the so-called sound money, which you at least had to actually have and could actually use at face value, even if it was hard to come by, and even if prices were rising anyway. Now, a bit of a counterintuitive tangent here, the author notes that because so much economic activity in the American countryside in this era, outside of the Atlantic seaboard, occurred in a still non-cash framework that relied heavily on bartering goods for services between individuals and families who knew each other, most of these people could not conceptualize why it might be economically necessary for the major American cities, corporations, and governments to engage in credit-based financing of large endeavors in order to grow the economy as a whole. These interior regions were not quite yet being forced into the cash market economy, although it was beginning to creep in, and certainly controversial issues like the species circular, uh, which forced a lot more things to be paid in coins rather than paper, um, certainly facilitated that transition toward the cash uh, economy. Now, the Canadian Radical Republicans embraced the loco-foco positions, seeking to enshrine the constitutional subservience of capital and private property to the needs of the general public in their hypothetical future independent state, which did not materialize. On both sides of the border, partisans espoused the view that any future bank should serve the people and be directed by the people through elected representative boards instead of boards of wealthy owners. Now, I notice that this author does not mention that a significant source of anti-British resentment in the United States at the time, including among some of the rich, actually, was how much public and private debt was held by British lenders. That is discussed in the 1935 article on the social history of the economic depression of 1837 to 43, which we cited earlier. Um, so, uh, Rachel, before we uh, sort of uh, close out here, what, what was your take on this? Um, obviously, the Locofoco movement, bit of a flash in the pan, short-lived, probably less than five years, um, but influential in its sort of incoherent anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian uh, politics, um, an unusual coalition of people, but in some ways we can see that there were common concerns there. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. I... I'm uh, reminded of our of our money um, series that we did in September and October of 2021, and I would encourage everybody to give that a listen, um, where we go more in depth on these uh, these uh, concepts. Um, but yeah, I think it is interesting that uh, it did the movement did combine the concerns of two such disparate groups as wage uh, urban wage laborers and rural farmers and super rural just out out on the pioneer basically and the fact that these these two groups that are seemingly have nothing in common did actually have these concerns in common because they were forced into this cash world um that that didn't serve them very well um when it came to like paying down debts and and uh being forced to to live in this new credit economy 
So it, it is interesting to see how um, they could tie these groups together in this movement. Yeah. And this is the sort of paradox of the whole thing is, like you said, it's like on the one hand, they're being forced to pay for more things in cash. Sometimes they hate that. Sometimes they prefer that because at least the cash has a, a specific value in a way that, uh, you know, our modern paper money also has a similar value in that way. But at the time, you had banks issuing their own kind of paper notes, paper money that could be sometimes only exchanged at a non-face value. Uh, and so they didn't like that, right? But this insistence on the cash the coinage basically makes it very difficult to do a lot of economic transactions in these parts. It, you know, probably caused them to raise a lot of their prices for, you know, selling their wheat and things like that. And so you see, there's all these kind of conflicting impulses. And then for the urban laborers, something else we talked about in our series was things like usury laws and uh, small dollar lending uh, to urban proletariat workers uh, who would obviously become a much larger sort of part of the population later in the 19th century, but were definitely a real and existing uh, segment at this time, as seen in the flower riot. Um, but that was another thing that came up along with the issues of like personal bankruptcy laws and debtors, prisons and things like that is this question of like, well, if you don't have any credit and lending system, even though you're upset and ideologically, there was a lot of ideology at the time, as we talked about in the American Money series against credit in general, especially personal credit, uh, if not, you know, corporate credit, if that's not available, then a lot of economic activity becomes very difficult, uh, even for relatively small individuals. You have people going to the equivalent of payday loans or, or loan sharks uh, at, at the time because the laws on small lending, uh, small dollar lending, were very restrictive at the time. Uh, and this was ideologically seen as a big no-no, even among a lot of rich people. Uh, and so this was something that was beginning to come over the horizon into people's consciousness as a potential issue. But at the time, you get this sort of conflicting impulse of like, well, we should just go with sound money, coinage, etc. But also that's going to make life very difficult for me. And this cash economy, market economy system is is a very different system from what I'm used to here. Uh, and, and so there's this, there's a lot of push-pull tensions in different directions, but basically the underlying thing is just that this is a very confusing and disruptive time period, uh, socially and economically for a lot of people. The loco focos don't last very long, as we've said. So what what ultimately wraps up that splinter movement? I think ultimately the loco foco movement sort of collapsed because Martin Van Buren dispatched federal troops against a lot of his own supporters and then also lost the 1840 election in which the Whigs, contrary to their normal national platform of favoring the capitalist rich owners, adopted a whole bunch of loco floco planks temporarily in order to win the election and they did things like pass the bankruptcy law and some of the other things which then they subsequently also repealed later and that was their way of getting into power and holding on to power uh but not really conceding fundamentally to any of the demands as we know industrial capitalism won out in this country that was a losing battle for people that were opposed to that but they felt very strongly during this period 
Uh, and you also see it manifest in, you know, the burned over district with religious movements and things like that. But you see this deep sort of unease and uncertainty about what the future holds as things are transitioning toward a wage labor based economy where things are going to have to be paid in a different way than they had been before. Yeah. And I I think one thing to keep in mind when talking about this is like how economically young the country was. Like there were still a lot of growing pains happening at this time. Like if you compare it to Europe that has been, that had been using credit since like the 1500s and, and, um, I, I, I'm sure we've talked about that in the past uh, episodes when we're talking about money. It's interesting to see how how far behind and how young we were compared to like the other um, well-established economies of the time in Europe. So it, it's interesting that these growing pains happened, but then ultimately we did buy into this multinational capitalism and, and really thrived under that system. But it there were definitely some some growing pains, and especially with this uh, depression um, happening in the 1830s and 1840s, um, to to get to to the 1850s and and kind of that establishment of of our uh, standing up in the in the international economic stage and and becoming the the big power that we became. All right. Well, Rachel, thanks for being on the show this week. Uh, thanks for having me.